Judges. And basically, as you know, the book of Judges is a sordid tale. It's, it's really a sad um, time in Israel's history. And, and there's amazing um, victories and conquests and main amazing things that God does. One of the things that happens in life is that we oftentimes put ourselves in a bad situation. And the nation of Israel continued to put themselves in a bad um, place. And, and at some point, they would, they would call out to God for help. And, and the most amazing thing is that God would help them. I, I think in our lives, and I think this is important, I want you guys to catch this, that Satan wants to tell you that you've put yourself in there. You guys have ever heard that expression or used that expression? Maybe to your kids. Oh, you made your bed, you got to lie in it. I'm good, thank you. You made your bed, you got to lie in it. Or, you know, you did this to yourself. And, you know, sometimes we, we want our kids to learn through that lesson of, of there's, there's consequences for our choices. And without a doubt, there are consequences and reactions for our choices. But the, the, the amazing thing is that God doesn't do that to us. No matter where you are, no matter where you've been, no matter where you end up, no matter how you got there, if you cry out to God, he will answer you. He will heal you. He will forgive you. He will use you. Nowhere will God say, okay, no, that's it. Forget it. That's enough. You, you know, you made your bed. Now you lie in it. Amazing grace of God. You know, you know what happens? The Bible talks about an unforgivable sin or an unpardonable sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And sometimes folks can... You know, we've, I've met folks who, who have been older, 60s, 70s, who didn't walk with the Lord for lots of years of their lives because they had believed and Satan had lied to them and they, they, they believed that they had committed the unpardonable sin. And the Bible says that all sins are forgiven except for the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And we call that the unpardonable sin. And so they would come weeping, saying that, that, they, that they, at some point early in life, they committed the unpardonable sin. And, and, and we always had the, the privilege and the honor of being able to tell them, you've not committed the unpardonable sin if your heart is broken, if you're here asking for forgiveness. Because really the, the reality is once for, for those that have committed or if that's the case, those folks will never cry out to God. They will never ask for or really repent in their hearts unto the Lord. Because if they do, what will happen? God will forgive them. God will absolutely forgive them. You know, one of the things that's a little bit, you know, fresh. But what about that young man who just killed 17 kids in high school in Florida? God will forgive that kid. That kid could go to heaven. I know part of us feels like, man, that kid don't deserve to go to heaven. And what he did was evil and terrible. But, but the reality is, that kid can go to heaven. You know, you know the... I don't know if you guys follow it at all, but Charlie Manson, you guys know the story, maybe some of you older folks, you know, older than me, would, would remember and, and maybe, you know, were glued to the news during those, those, those days of, of Charlie Manson and his crimes. But several of the people, one of them being one of his main assassins, a guy by the name of Tex Watson, that guy got saved. That guy gave his life to Jesus and he lived out the last part of his life in prison as a Christ follower. Pastor Chuck Smith Calvary Chapel founding pastor went and visited Tex Watson in prison. And the guy was, was born again believer in Jesus. Jeffrey Dahmer, if you're familiar with his story. Jeffrey Dahmer was, was a psychopathic, demonic killer who would, who would rape little boys and then murder them and eat their bodies and keep them in the fridge. They said that they, they murdered him in prison because he gave his life to Jesus. And it bothered the inmates so much that he believed he was forgiven of his sins that they murdered him. And I don't know, in Jeffrey Dahmer's case, it happened very fast. But if Jeffrey Dahmer called out and asked God to forgive him, guess where we, guess, guess who Billy Graham is going to meet today? Jeffrey Dahmer. And so Judges is, is, a, is a reminder. It's, it's again, it's this, 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 the people of Israel who you know, were in a bad position and it didn't matter how many times God came to their rescue and how many times you thought they should have learned their lesson, God forgave them. Now, um, you know, we, we don't have and we don't teach or preach or we don't believe that the Bible teaches, you know, a sloppy agape, that you just live however you want and, 
And then you ask God to forgive you, or then you just, you know, you're okay with the guy upstairs if you, you ask Jesus in your heart at youth camp at 12 years old, and then you just live like hell for the rest of your life. That, that's, that's not what we're talking about. But God, God absolutely, there, there are, um, God will forgive you. But, but there are, even in God's forgiveness, there's consequences for our sins. You, you're going to live, I'm going to live the consequences of choices that I make. King David was forgiven of his sins. And some of King David's sins are pretty um, egregious. They're, they're, they're pretty bad, some of the things that, that um, King David did. If I, if I described to you um, the sins of King David and told you, hey, this is just John Doe, and this is his life, and these are the things that John Doe did in his life, and I began to put King David's sins upon him, you guys would be like, that guy's a scum. That guy's a, you know, he's not a good dude. But it was King David and he had a heart. God says of King David, he's a man after my own heart because he really loved God. And he, he, he had some flesh and, and he made some mistakes in his flesh, but he, he, he taught us. He's the biblical example of repentance. And if you want to, to find and know and understand how it is and what it means to repent before God, you go to the Psalms and you read and you study the life of King David because he teaches you the heart of repentance, even in the midst of some terrible sins. But King David lived with the results of his sins. When, when King David was old and advanced in years, he was miserable and, and he couldn't get warm at night. They would pack bodies on top of the king naked bodies, you know, because of the body heat to try to keep him warm at night because he was, he, he, and his sleep left him as a result of some of his sins. God had forgiven him. He's in heaven. He's the great, 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 many more great grandfathers of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's a man after God's own heart. Jesus is still the son of David, King David. But there was, there was a consequence for his sins. And so, um, again, that, that's kind of the, again, just in a nutshell, to say that the book of Judges is about this. It's about the nation of Israel, as we've seen already in six chapters, where they turn and they follow the Baals. And then they cry out to God, and God brings a prophet or a judge in this case to um, rule the people or to, to deliver the people. And, and through the judge, the people repent, and they get right, and they go through a season. I forget what the number was, but you guys remember last week, I think, we read a number where they had, oh, 80 years, I think it was, right? So Moab subdued them under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. The longest period of rest in this section of Israel's history was an 80-year period um, before they turned back to um, the old ways of following after the, the Ashtoreths and the Baals. So chapter 6, um, another story again of the same type of thing. And this time the judge or the deliverer is um, somebody named Gideon, somebody we're all very familiar with, somebody who's very well known in the scripture because his particular deliverance and story is very powerful. Now, I just want to point out, actually, before we get to six, in um, and I, we talked about it last week. I don't know how much I went into it because I kind of think I had to rush through a little bit of it. But I wanted to make sure that you guys made some notes or understood this, that um, in that last section that we talked about, do you remember what it was, who the judge was? He was the left-handed guy who kept his sword on his right thigh and um, he, Jabba the Hutt, and he, you know, he put the sword, said the sword was a cubit long, not counting the handle. A cubit is 18 inches. It's the, it's the span from your inside of your elbow to the tip of your, your, your middle finger. So that was just the size of the blade plus the handle. He stuck it inside the guy's belly and the entire handle even what's consumed in um, Jabba the Hutt's belly. But, but through that whole section, um, we get all of these um, um, things that, that remind us of the word of God. And so um, he made a, a two-edged sword. And what does Hebrews tell us about the word of God? The word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. And when he put the sword into Jabba the Hutt's belly, the Bible says that dirt came out. And so when you put the word of God in your life, what comes out? The dirt. And so, and there's like five or six um, idioms or types of the word of God in our life in that last section. That I, like I said, I don't think I highlighted too much. We, you know, and as we go through the word of God, we're always looking for Jesus. Um, 
But in that last section, it was about the word of God, the two-edged sword, again, being an idiom, a reminder for us of the word of God and putting the word of God in our lives. And basically, in summary, when, you, when, the, when the word goes in, the dirt comes out. Amen? All right, chapter 6. Then the children of... So chapter 5, actually, I think I kind of... I don't even think... I think we buzzed chapter 5. I think we ended at 4. But 5 is the song of Deborah. She was the female judge that... Um, in that second story that we looked at last week where um, uh, Barry or Barak wouldn't... Um, he wouldn't go up and fight that battle because of the chariots. And then Deborah says, let's go. And he says, I'm not going to go unless you go with me. And then they go up. And the, the 900 chariots come down to the, the valley. And God brings a huge thunderstorm, which creates mud in the valley. And all those horses and all those 900 chariots, the wheels sink down to the bottoms. And they're stuck. And the chariots are no, long, no good anymore. And they come in. And they destroy that army with the 900 chariots. You remember the story of the king of that army, he flees and he goes into that woman's house and she gives him, do you remember what she gave him? She, well, first, but first she gave him some, some milk or some curdled, uh, goat's milk or whatever it was. And then she spiked his head to the ground. And, um, that's, that's where we left off. And then, um, in chapter, that was four. Then in five, Deborah sings a song of glory to God. You can read through that. And that brings us to six, which begins the story of Gideon. And it says, um, then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. This pattern begins again. And so the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. (coughs) Excuse me. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel because the Midianites, the children of Israel, made themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was whenever Israel had sh- had sown, not clothes, you guys, not S-E-W-S-O-W, M- the Midianites would come up, also Amalekites, and the people of the east would come up against them. So you guys will always remember the um, in the Bible the Amalekites. They're a common foe, and they, they come up over and over again through Israel's history. The Amalekites are a type of the flesh in the Bible. They represent the flesh. And what is... Um, Jesus's prescription for you to deal with your flesh is to crucify it, annihilate it, don't reform it, don't cut it back, don't don't regulate it, but to completely annihilate the flesh. And so the Amalekites are a biblical type of the flesh. And that's why when God gives Saul the commandment in Samuel to kill the Amalekites, it's genocide. He says, kill every man, woman, child, dog, goldfish, cat, animal, everything of the Amalekites is to be wiped out. And as you guys know, Saul did not um, obey that command. And so here we have a a mention of the Amalekites. They're one of the ites. And and they all, Amalekites and the Midianites and all these folks are all a part of what? People group? They belong to a people group? The K... Canaanites. Okay, they're all Canaanites. So when you hear that term Canaanites, that's a that's the Old Testament um, kind of would be like Americans, but within America we have lots of different nationalities. So the Canaanites were the people that were in Israel. Even um, um, the Philistines were uh, would fit into that 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 main group of the Canaanites. These are all the subgroups of Canaanites. And then in verse 4 it says, Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for either Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as the locusts, both they and their camels and without number, and they would enter into the land to destroy it. So they were oppressing Israel. And so everything that Israel had when it was harvest time and it was time to thresh the wheat and to reap the harvest, the Midianites would come down and they didn't just take or tax them and take some of it, you know, and beat them up a little bit. And um, they took everything. They, they left nothing. They had no mercy. They didn't come in and say, OK, your family, this is a, I'm going to leave this little bit for your family to live this week, this month, this year. They took everything. And it says, so Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. So they were greatly impoverished. So they, they were in a bad way. They, they, they didn't have food. They didn't have sustenance. They, they were really in a bad way. They were 
uh, famine and epidemic proportions. And so they finally, in this position, um, cried out to the Lord. You know, sometimes I think, you know, I know it was for me. You guys, you guys know my testimony. Like I, I got to a pretty bad place in life before I looked up. And sometimes when I share my testimony, you know, maybe the world or folks um, that don't know Jesus, they, they kind of get the impression like, um, well, you needed that. Like you were a drug addict and you were, you know, in a bad way. And yeah, you needed God. Like I, I'm not there. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't need that. Or, you know, sometimes people feel like you have to, you know, when, you know, I'll share my testimony with somebody else who, who served Jesus their whole life and didn't really have a lot of blah, kind of parts of the testimony to tell or like, well, I don't really have a testimony because, you know, you do, you did all that. I'm like, no, you have a way better testimony than I do. And you don't have to hit rock bottom before you look up. And, and that idea sometimes we have in the world and the world has that idea. And we as Christians kind of go along with it that, you know, you need to hit rock bottom before you look up. But that's, that's not the case at all, ever the case. You know, we see, have some examples of that. The prodigal son in Luke, in Luke chapter 15, he was finally hit rock bottom and he was in the pig's pen wishing to eat what the pigs ate before he looked up. But we don't have to. You don't have to get to rock bottom before you look up. And as soon as you look up, guess what happens? God answers you. God heals you. God meets you. Just waiting for you to look up. But for the nation of Israel, they did hit rock bottom before they looked up. But by the grace of God, and thankfully they did look up. And then um, in verse number eight, it says, and the Lord sent a prophet. I have that underlined in my Bible. Why? Because we already talked about it. Because God, God, you know, they cried out and God sent a prophet. You cry out and God sends a deliverer. And, 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 you know, the, it's, it, to me, it's so matter of, matter of a fact right here. It's so, it, it's, there's no like, well, God said, huh, what should I do this time? Am I, is that enough? Am I tired of these guys yet? Or, you know, there's no vacillation. There's no question. There's no, you know, okay, I'm going to send a prophet, but you just understand that I sent you a prophet the last time and you did this. And I know, you know, none of that, just, they cried out and the Lord sent a prophet. To the children of Israel who said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you out of Egypt and I brought you out of the house of bondage and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also, I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites who is in your whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. And now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree. So is that um, word angel there capitalized or not in your Bible? Capital A? Okay. Okay, if it's not, your Bible's whack. No, I'm just kidding. Careful. No, your Bible's got it wrong. Should be capital A there. Now the capital angel of the capital Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Oprah Winfrey, which belonged to... To Joe Ash, the Abizarite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. So this is the funniest um, thing with Gideon. You know, we share this that, um, that he, he's in a winepress threshing wheat because he was afraid of the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord, and um, it, it's, it's the angel of the Lord capital because we're going to find out that this is Jesus. And as you guys know, um, I was thinking about today as I went through and as I, you know, as I was going through this, how many times already in our study of the Old Testament we see where God sh has shown up to his people. And, and so there's two types of um, um, God showing up in the Old Testament. One we call the theophany, which is an Old Testament appearance of God. And the other one we call a Christophany, which is Jesus himself or an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. This here is a Christophany. This is Jesus. Um, a theophany example would be um, Abraham, I'm sorry, yeah, Ab um, not Abraham, Moses in the burning bush. The, the bush was burning and it didn't consume and Moses spoke to the bush and the bush said, I am. And um, God shows up. But I mean, if you look all the way through it, all the patriarchs and all the different major stopping points through the Old Testament, we see Jesus. We see Jesus showing up 
over and over and over again. He showed up to Moses. He showed up to Abraham. He showed up to Joseph. He showed up to Joshua. He shows up here to um, to Gideon. And it says the angel of the Lord in verse 12 appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Now, again, I imagine Gideon, when the Lord showed up and said, you mighty man of valor, that he, he looked over his shoulder like, who's he talking to? Because Gideon was in the wine press threshing wheat. Now, you thresh wheat on top of a hill because the, you, you throw the wheat in the air and, and the wheat falls to the ground and the chaff, the wind blows it off and it's how you separate the wheat and the chaff. But if he's down in a wine press threshing wheat, there's there's nowhere, there's no wind. He's hiding from the Midianites. Normally you'd be up on a hill, or you'd be up in an open place where the wind is blowing, but he's down in a valley so nobody could see him. No wind. So how do you thresh wheat with no wind? He's probably throwing it in the air. <laughs> Trying to get the, you know, the wheat and the chaff to separate. He, he's, he's scared to death as he hides in there looking around for the Midianites you know, to steal his stuff. And the angel of the Lord shows up and says, oh, you mighty man of valor. Now, it was so ironic, right? Because he's, he's, he's afraid. He's, he's hiding. He's the farthest thing from a mighty man of valor at the point that the Lord says this to him. But as in your life and my life, so many times, God, God doesn't see you for what you are now. He sees you for your potential. And he wasn't calling Gideon. Gideon was definitely not a mighty man of valor at that moment in his life. You know, and when you share this, that this reality that, that God has the ability to see the best in you. Unfortunately, we don't have that ability too many times. We see um, people's past. We see people's present. And we just, we don't have the, you know, like God, the love to really see the best in, in people and, and really what their potential and their future is. But God does. That's why God can look at you without any kind of regret and angst. And that's why God can look at you with real love because he sees the best. You know, and when you share that sometimes, I think people get the idea when you say to them, um, you know, God sees you not for who you are, but for who you can be. That people feel like, well, God doesn't like who I am. He likes who I'm going to be. And until I get there, God doesn't necessarily. I know he loves me, but God doesn't necessarily like me. And, and for me in my life, I think one of the things that really helped me, one of the things that was really, you know, encouraging and revolutionary to me was that just also along with that truth is that God even likes me. And that's a biblical truth. You realize God likes you. He likes you where you are right now. He likes you who you are today. He and, and in God's love. Don't ever believe that because God sees you for something better, that he only likes that better you. He loves you today. He likes you. And I, I maybe mean, not for the girls, but I know for the guys, that's, 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 you know, a weakness and an important thing for us because it's a weakness to know that God likes us and God likes us today. And so God shows up to Gideon with love and like, and he says, oh, mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, oh, my Lord, if Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of Midian. So Gideon, um, he, he's not very spiritual, Gideon, this guy, Gideon. He, he's not very um, likely candidate for the call that God has. And really, I think one of the um, marks of an immature believer is they they ask the Lord, why? Why? I think of anybody in a situation, you know, it's like one of the problems with why is why only focuses on yesterday and it only focuses on what's behind. And, and if you live your life focused on what's behind you, you're, you're going to struggle. And a biblical truth and a reality for your life is God wants you to focus on tomorrow. God wants you to focus on today. God wants you to focus on the front window. And what do I always say? I say we drive the car of life looking out the windshield, not the rearview mirrors. That's why the apostle Paul says, the one thing I do is I forget those things that are past and I press toward the upward call of, of, of Christ Jesus. 
And so we, we look forward and we focus on forward. But Gideon here says, why? Well, if all this is, then why? Like Gideon couldn't see that for seven years. And what we're going to find out is Gideon's own father was a priest of Baal. And Gideon's own house was a temple to Baal. And, and, and his question is why? Now, I, I do want to say this about why. First of all, I want to caution you as a, as a believer. Sometimes why is, um, it's, it's a whiny question. It's a lack of faith. It's not the best question for you to ask God. Why? Why, God? But I want to say this. So, so work on it. Like, you know, just because why does seem to be a lack of faith, right? Like if you trust God, that, that God is going to, you know, he has your best interest in hand. God's going to work it out. Then you can work yourself past the why a little bit onto the what and onto the how and how do we move forward. But here's what I say um, to people sometimes. It's okay if that's where you are, because sometimes that's where we are. And it's better just to be honest at that point. Like I'm stuck in the why. It's okay. If you're there, you're just immature and lame. But listen, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I didn't mean that. I really didn't. I didn't. I didn't mean that. But if sometimes it's just real. It's just raw. It's real emotion. And it's so much better just to be real with God. And if that's how you're feeling that day, it's okay. Go for it. Seriously. And I didn't mean that before. I didn't mean to shame you. Because I, I am being honest when I say, Sometimes we, we just feel like, why? I've been there recently, you know? And, and at that point, why, God? It's okay. But so Gideon is there. Why? Why, Lord? Why this stuff? Blah, blah, blah. And verse 14, then the Lord turned to him and said, <laughs> go in this might of yours. <laughs> did, did the Lord spend any time answering this question, why? Not a bit. He just told him what, what, was, what was next. Gideon, just go do what you're supposed to do, man. Just go in this might of yours because you're so mighty. Look at you hiding in the wine press, one knee smoting the other, <laughs> trying to thresh wheat. You mighty man, just go and fight, you little sweetie. Stop asking me why. <laughs> and so he says, go in this might of yours and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? I have a little note here in my Bible for myself, a little encouragement that God gave me. And I wrote next to it, Utah. And so when I get discouraged about things that are or not happening in Utah with the ministry, I have this reminder, have I not sent you? And the answer is absolutely yes, God sent me. And so he reminds him. And sometimes when the battle gets tough, um, you know, just knowing that God called you and that God sent you is is so much of the, the strength. You know, whatever your ministry is, whatever you do, you know, and that's why I think in the in the front end, you know, one of one of the, one of one of the most important counsels that I give to people is, you know, know know that you know that you know what God's called you to do, and then and then when you get there and it gets difficult and it's hard, rather than asking why, you you can know that God's called you and God sent you. You know, Tommy, for example, Tommy and Destiny wanted to come up and help us um, do worship and do the. Um, youth group when we moved out here from California. And so, you know, I did my best to talk Tommy and Destiny out of it, telling them you cannot come unless you're positive that God is calling you to come out here and help us. Don't come unless you hear and you and your wife both know that it's God's will. And so, you know, because I, I, you can't come, you can't come unless God told you to come because I'm telling you to stay home. And so when they were positive that, that, that God had called them to come, they came and, and then guess what happened? Two young California kids lived through a Utah winter. <laughs> and when the, when there was a foot and a half of snow on their front yard, they could say, I'm positive God called me to be here. And I'm, I'm where I'm supposed to be, you know, because then otherwise, if, if you don't get that direction in the front, then when you got a foot and a half of snow in your life, you, you know, you think, well, did I make a mistake getting here? Or am I not supposed to be here? Or is this not God's will? And so, so important to, to know. And, and God gives Gideon this um, reminder, this real encouraging thing that we all need. Have I not sent you a confirmation that I did send you? I am sending you. And no matter what happens along the way, 
good or bad, just you'll know and you'll have my presence with you that I sent you. And he says in verse 15, so he said to him, oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you. How is is um, Gideon going to deliver Israel? Verse 16. Come on, y'all. It's not rocket science. I will be with you. Okay, I gave you the answer. Verse 16, I will be with you. You notice, you notice Gideon's response when the Lord says, you will deliver Israel. I have sent you. He says, no, not me. How am I going to do it? I'm the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's house. Do you know where God's strength is recognized? In our weakness. In our frailty, in um, God's God, you guys realize God's a glory hog. I know some people don't like that tough. God is not going to share his glory with anyone. And, 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 you know, sometimes if people really feel like God's gifted them to do something and, and they're really just, you know, God really needs them and God made the right choice when he chose them to do this ministry. That's not the person God's looking for. Like Saul, when God first chose him, when God first um, called Saul, he was humble and he was and he was in a right place and he was the one that God needed. King David, when God called King David, say, say, uh, um, King David's father, his name was. Oh, my Jesse, when when Jesse um, when Samuel came to Jesse and said, God has told me to anoint one of your sons as the king. He had eight sons and he only brought seven of them to the party because surely there's no way it would be King David. He was this shepherd boy out in the field. And after going through all seven sons, God didn't pick any of them. And and he says to Jesse, he says, hey, do you have any other sons? Because God didn't. Oh, yeah, I got one more, but certainly it's not him. That was the one that God chose. Moses, when it came time for, for God to call Moses, Moses said, no, I don't want to go. I, I can't do it. I can't even speak well. And God said, yeah, you're the one I'm looking for. And, and so oftentimes it is that, that, that understanding that we lack ability that God's looking for. And so if God has called you, if God is um, calling you and, and you lack the ability to do what it is that God's called you to do, you're in a good place. Because that, that's where God wants to use you. That's what God's looking for. Why? Because he's a glory hog. And he doesn't want to share his glory. And, and when it's all done, and you know you lacked ability, and the only way that it went really well is because God showed up and did it, he gets the glory. And, he, and you give him the glory, and he receives the glory. And, and so um, this, this is really the strength of Gideon in the beginning here, and, and continues to be. Unfortunately, with some folks, Saul... Saul began to get to the point, we see it in ministry all the time, where God does call people who are in the right place and who are in a place of weakness and God begins to gift them and God begins to um, um, bless them and they, they have talent, they have gifts of God and then they begin to rely on those gifts, they begin to rely on those talents and they get to a place like Saul and Saul's life ended miserably, the first king of Israel. Because the humble boy that God called turned into a, an arrogant man who, who thought that it was about his gifting and, and, and he was, you know, and his skills happens in ministry. I believe it happened to one of the largest churches in America, Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. And I think I shared the story a couple of weeks ago about its pastor who, who was a gifted, gifted, gifted teacher of God's word who, who later in life, after 35 years of ministry, had a two-year uh, uh, porn and sex addiction and all kinds of weird stuff going on in his personal life and remained in the pulpit for two years. Crazy. And so, you know, because he got to a point where, he, where, where the gifting and the talent that God had given him, he, 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 he could use that as opposed to it having to be God's Holy Spirit who shows up every day. I never want to get to that place in my life. I want to be in a place where I, you know, I can't do anything. I couldn't go teach a third and fourth grade Sunday school class and wing it unless God's Holy Spirit showed up and helped me. 
And, and that's the place that, that, that God wants us to be. And then in verse 16, it says, um, and the Lord said to him, surely I'll be with you. And then in verse 17, then he said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who, who talk with me. Do not depart from here. And I, I pray until I come to you and bring my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat, which is actually a lamb an unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. And so again, oftentimes, you guys, when we see Jesus appear in the Old Testament, we always have these, these idioms or these signs of Jesus. And so here we have a lamb and unleavened bread. Okay, do you remember the last time we saw um, Jesus show up? It was wine and bread that, that was offered. And so, um, so here we have a lamb and unleavened bread, which is interesting. But but what else is interesting is is remember that Israel is in a tremendous famine right now. I mean, the Midianites have raped the land. And where, where does Gideon have to go to get this lamb? Or where was he keeping it? I guess he had he hadn't been um, um, he hadn't been raided yet by the Midianites because he had wheat. So he was he still had his harvest. So he had managed somehow, I guess, to keep his things without the Midianite raiders finding them. So he had some sustenance. So he went and he got a goat and flour and he made the bread and and he and the meat and the put him in the basket and he brought the pot and he brought them to him, capital H, under the terebinth tree and presented him. So can you imagine Jesus? Now in real time we, I mean, in, in, in Bible verse reading the Bible time, we just read this whole story in like 12 seconds. Now let's play it out. I'm going to sit in that chair and one of you guys is going to go prepare a goat for me in unleavened bread. And, uh, I mean, you got to kill it. You got to skin it. You got to cook it. You got to, how long did that take? I, well, we, we did a pig one time, you know, we did that pig roast here and it took us like 12 hours. I mean, it was, you know, it was a long time. We had six in the morning. I think we ate it like three o'clock and that was four hours of work the day before doing the prep. I mean, what, what did you, do you think Jesus got out his iPhone sitting under the, uh, the terebinth tree and like started playing words with friends or what did he do? I mean, did he get out of the Bible and stuff? He sat under the tree and waited for Gideon to go prepare this stuff. And when Gideon came back, he was he was sitting under the tree waiting for, wait for, waiting for Gideon. And then in verse 20, it says, The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour, the, pour out the broth. And he did so. And the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand. And he touched the meat and the unleavened bread. And fire rose out of the rock. And consume the meat and the unleavened bread, and the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Uh, you know, we, we we have this staff mentioned. The Lord had a staff. It's kind of a biblical thing. There's something cool about a staff, huh? You always see you see it in movies and different things. Iconic thing is portrayed with a staff, but it probably comes from this biblical thing. We've seen Moses carried a staff wherever he went. Here we have a, a picture of the angel of the Lord. He has a staff, and then in verse 22, now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord, but he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, what does he call him? God, Lord God, is Jesus God? Yes, Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And then the Lord said to him, peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace to this day. It is still in Oprah Winfrey of the Abizarites. And now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has cut down and the wooden image beside it. So now we're going to get to the next little part of the story. The first part of Gideon's um, commissioned call. But before I do, Hey, listen, I just want to, I want to, I want you guys to remember this section, because Gideon is going to do something here in a minute where he's going to put out a fleece. And when I get to that part, 
I want you to remember how clear the call of God is on Gideon's life. And even the, um, the revelation that when uh, Gideon realizes this is the angel of the Lord. So again, if you put yourself in those shoes, Jesus shows up to you personally. You have a meal with him. He touches it with his staff. You, you have a, a revelation where you realize this is the angel. You say to him, oh, Lord God. And, and then really when he says that, what's setting in is all of the things that this angel had commissioned or told him. You're going to live. I'm going to be with you. You're going to deliver Israel. You know, on and on and on of these things that God said. And, and you and I, we would think, right? What, what if when you got home this evening, Jesus was sitting in your living room and he said, go make me some lamb chops. And then he said, by this time tomorrow, you're going to win the lottery or whatever. <laughs> by this time tomorrow, your whole family is going to be walking with Jesus. And Jesus himself is sitting in your living room and you eat lamb chops with him and he gives you a prophecy. And then he leaves. And before you go to bed that night, you're doubting whether it's going to happen or not. You think like, no, not me. Like if the Lord showed up and I had a meal with him and he told me these things, like I would so believe I would, I would just get it by then. But I don't know, because after all this, Gideon's not going to get it. He still is going to lack faith. And again, just a constant reminder for us that, you know, we find ourselves in that position and, and it's intended, right? Our study of these stories is intended to build your faith so that when you find yourselves in those positions, you can rely on these things. So your faith grows, your faith grows and, and that you can trust the Lord and believe what he says is true. But unfortunately, Gideon is just not going to do it. And so his first commission, verse 25, again, now we have this other young bull. And then in verse 26, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the rock in the proper arrangement and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with wood in the image which you shall cut down. So Gideon took the men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him because he feared his father's house and the men of his city much to do it in the day. He did it by night. So do you remember Nick, Nicodemus? Nick at night. So Nicodemus um, was a, the guy, the infamous guy who um, Jesus was talking to in John chapter 3. We all know um, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But if you ask people who are very familiar with that verse, who was Jesus talking to when he said that? Nobody knows. The answer is Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a was a religious ruler who was afraid of the backlash of the Pharisees and the, the folks. And he wasn't quite sure. But he so he came to Jesus at night. And that's why we call him Nick at night. And, and there's something about, you know, you think sometimes people think God doesn't see at night. So, you know, all the folks that, you know, the religious folks that head out to Wendover for the weekend, you know, they come home at night or they stay out at night because God doesn't see them during the during the night. And so, um Again, Gideon, who's afraid. And again, you would think that Gideon, that you, that me, I mean, that your chest would be puffed out right about now. I mean, like Jesus just came and hooked, hung out at your house and played on his iPhone under the tree while you made him, you know, dinner. That, that you'd be pretty stoked. But he still is not quite that stoked. He still is afraid and he still does it. At night. And so what did he do? So basically what happened is his father. Hey, Brian, just put the TOD on there. And then um, we'll be wrapping up here pretty quick. And I'll try to keep an eye on it. Um, his father was a priest of Baal. And so his father had a place of worship there. And God told him to go and tear it down. And so Gideon goes in and he's afraid. So he goes in at night. And then in verse 28, and when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal tore down and the wooden image that was beside it was cut down. And the second bull was being offered on the altar, which had been built. And so they said to one another, who has done this thing? And when they inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash has done this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, bring your son that he may die because torn down the altar of Baal and because he has cut down the wooden images that was beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, 
Would you plead for Baal? So Joash is his father. Joash, again, is a priest of Baal. He's a pagan. He's, he's you know, in the, in the um, business of worshiping and um, helping people and providing a place of, of Baal worship in Israel, mind you, um, among God's people. And, and so God tells Gideon to go and, and tear this stuff down, and he does. So they bring Gideon's dad, Joash, and they say, you know, your, your son did this. Go bring, bring him so we can kill him. And now Joash, who, who's a priest of Midian, he has a choice at this point to, to choose his pagan god or his son. And, and thankfully, and by the grace of God, he, he wises up here and he, and he defends his son and he makes a case for his son. And basically he says to them, would you plead, would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, then let him plead for himself, because his altar has been torn down. Therefore, on this day, he called him Jerubbabel, saying, Let Baal plead against him, because he has torn down his altar. So that's what Jerubbabel means, let Baal plead against him. And so um, Joash gives them the common sense that, that Elijah gave the, the prophets of Baal on the top of Mount Carmel and the people of Israel. If Baal is, prophet, is, is God, then serve him. But if the Lord is God, then serve him. And he says, listen, if Baal is a God, we don't need to do his bidding. If Baal is offended because um, Gideon destroyed his altar, then let Baal deal with him. And if Baal's really a God, then, then, then he can, you know, do his own bidding. Like, what kind of God do you have that you have to go do his bidding for him and he can't do his own bidding? And so I guess it makes sense to the people. And, you know, unfortunately, I guess they had enough faith in this in this pagan God that they were willing to take Joash's advice. And it says in verse 33, then all the Midianites and and Amalekites and the people of the east gathered together and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and then he blew the trumpet and the Abizarites gathered together beside him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh who also gathered behind him. And he also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun and Naphtali and they came up to meet them. So why these didn't come with just the blowing of the trumpet? They were probably on the, the, on the other side of the Jordan. And so, but they did come. And so Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, the last thing, guys, and we'll be done. Blame it on the Billy Graham videos. Um, But we'll finish this chapter. So um, Gideon said in verse 37, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If the if there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on the on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And so. Um, this is where we get the term you might hear people say or use this expression, put out a fleece. So basically what a fleece is, uh, biblical fleece is um, a test to test God. You know, maybe you in your lives, in order to discern God's will, you put out a fleece. You know, you get in your car tomorrow morning and you say, okay, Lord, if every light on my way to work is green, then I'll know that you want me to tell my boss about Jesus. You know, are you, you put out some kind of fleece in your life that if, you know, all this stuff falls in place, then you'll know God's will. If, you know, your, your husband comes home, your wife comes home and says something nice to you, then you'll know that whatever, I don't know. But, um, it it really is not, um, a biblical way of discerning God's will for your life. You know, that, that's not how God wants us to discern his will with fleece. It's a mistake here that Gideon's making. It's a lack of faith. It, is it, is it, has God made um, the call clear already? Right? God, God's already told him what he wanted to do. God's already encouraged him. God didn't have to send the angel of the Lord there. He sent Jesus to confirm it. And, and none of us get that. And we still have to obey and believe. But Gideon is still not done. And so he's doing this kind of weird thing to discern the will of God. And God doesn't want you to do those things to discern his will. He wants you to obey the voice and be obedient. And, and, and so Gideon's going to do it anyways. And so it says, 
And, and it was so when Gideon rose in the morning and he squeezed the fleece together and he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. So basically um, the fleece would have been like a, I don't know, I think a cotton or something. And in the morning when Gideon got up, all the, the, the ground around the cotton was dry and the cotton was full of the dew. And he wrung it out into a bowl and it was a bowl full of water that he, he wrung from the dew in the morning. And so that's what he said, that's what he asked God to do. Because, you know, we don't, well, I guess we do here in the desert, I didn't. But you wake up in the morning and the dew, there's dew on the grass. And so he said, let it be that everything is dry around and the, the cotton or the fleece is, um, is wet. And then Gideon in verse 39 said to God, do not be angry with me. Why would Gideon tell the Lord, do not be angry with me here in verse 39? But let me speak just one more time. Why? Because he knew, he knew he was in the wrong. He knew this was not God's will or God's intention for for discerning his will. He realized that this was a little bit of testing God's patience and resolve. And he said, don't be angry with me, but let me speak just one more time. Let me test, I pray, just one more with the fleece. And th- this is the stupid thing about fleeces, you guys. Like, he, he woke up the next morning and it was miraculous. Now, this is this is miracles here, okay? It was miraculous the way that God answered his fleece. And he said to himself, well, maybe it was just science. Maybe it really wasn't God's miracle. So let me, let me double check. And that's what we do in our lives. Like we put out a fleece. Like, okay, God, if all these things happen, then, then I'll know it's your will. And then all those things happen. And you say to yourself, well, maybe it was a coincidence. Maybe that, you know... And it just never is a good way to discern. And so he said, let me test one more time, I pray. And he said, this time now, let it be dry only on the fleece, but all the ground around there be dew. And God did so that night and it was dry on the fleece, but everywhere else was was dew all on the ground. So the next morning, it was exactly the opposite. And the fleece, the cotton was dry and the dew was back all around the ground, but nothing on the cotton. And finally, Gideon gets the point. And then we get to the powerful chapter 7 Next time we get together. Hey, next week we're going to do part three of our prophecy update. So um, it is a video series. So just forewarn you guys. Um, we'd like to start doing some meals on Wednesday nights too. So um, I don't know if we'll be able to get together by next week. But here pretty quick we're going to start trying to do maybe a couple times a month on Wednesday nights for a while. Some meals and the, the purpose is just so that guys don't have to worry about dinner maybe we'll start a little bit early 6 30 ish to eat and hang out on those nights and we'll provide uh some meals for you guys so anyways let's pray father we thank you so much for jesus we we thank you god for gideon and this story and lord just this uh, uh, amazing um testimony god to build our faith and lord we ask your blessing in jesus name amen